Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. If you've been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ for some time, by now it has most certainly happened that you have witnessed or perhaps experienced behavior from other Christians that shocked you. In fact, the nature of the behavior may be such that you wind up having thoughts like, how, how can a person say that they're a Christian and do what they do? Too often we've known of Christian families in which the biblical picture of husband, wife, parent, or child is not the norm. Many Christian families experience relational dysfunction. Too often I have seen spouses that are mutually condemning. In other situations, there's a husband or a wife or a mother or a father who is so consistently critical that the uh, person on the receiving end believes that they are a failure. There have been elders who have fallen or have chosen to divorce their wives without a biblical justification or a willingness to allow their co-shepherds to engage the situation. I've seen children used by Christian parents as weapons against each other in the midst of a divorce. I have known of pastors and other ministry leaders who have thrown away their ministry and families because of someone they met on Facebook. Many of us know, or have known, believers who struggle with addiction to pornography or some substance. Some of, my, some of us may even know Christians who struggle with homosexual feelings and even behaviors. How is it that these things are not only tragic realities, but situations that happen all too often? The sad fact is that Christians are capable of thinking and doing exactly like those who do not know Jesus think and do. We're often left to wonder if there really can be the kind of life that Jesus described as abundant. We hear of victorious Christian living and almost have to laugh at the apparent fallacy of it. And so consequently, we have people who are indwelt by the spirit of the living God and yet they feel and believe that they are trapped in some level of spiritual or relational defeat. They believe the lie that life cannot be much more than what it has become. Are you depressed yet? What's the problem? What is the problem? Is it that these people really aren't saved? Well, perhaps. But very often they are saved, and that makes the whole thing even more confusing. The tragic truth is that a born-again believer is quite capable of living as if they were not born again. There is something that gets in the way 
of the kind of life that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are able to enjoy. And our text today addresses this. It addresses the conflict that every follower of Jesus has. There are no exceptions. And if we do not know what the real problem is, then we're not going to embrace the real It's an audience participation opportunity. If I don't know what the real problem is, then I'm not going to find the real. Oh, good. The caffeine worked. Our text identifies the problem, calls it flesh. And the solution enables every believer, without exception, when they Follow what we are going to see today. Enables every believer to know the life we truly have in Christ. It's a life of joy, peace, purpose, acceptance, freedom, and victory. We're going to see that dependence on the Spirit is the only way to walk. The Apostle Paul, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. You can pull it up on your phone or on the app, just like the Apostle Paul did. Galatians 5, we're going to begin in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a command. Walk. Walk a certain way. Now, in the New Testament, a walk is not a journey. The walk is not a journey. It's the manner that you go through the journey. It's the way in which you sojourn. That's a French word. Hear the romantic ring there? Sojourn. A walk is how you sojourn. It's how you go about. It's how you conduct yourself. And it implies progress and movement. This is something the person actively does. John MacArthur wrote this, quote, while the spirit is the source of holy living. It is the believer who is commanded to walk. You and I are to walk a certain way. It says, by the Spirit. This means a way of living that flows out of our connection to Jesus, out of our union with him. It is living out of our dependence on Christ. It is a way of living that would be consistent with his character and and his ways. And folks, I believe that this is the key command of the entire Galatian letter. I think this is where the Apostle Paul has been going right from very beginning in chapter 1, particularly as he comes into chapter 3. There he contrasted this way of living with living under the law, if you remember. And to live as if you're under that system, a system that says you have to be the one doing the doing. You have to perform is to be under a curse rather than knowing the blessing of the promised Holy Spirit, which comes by walking by faith. In chapter 4, he, returned to, he referred to this reality by looking at the history of the nation of Israel to illustrate that there's a way to live that basically is bondage and there's a way to live that is freedom. And in the very beginning of this chapter, we were exhorted, do not subject yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Because this is a command, it requires something from us. Anybody know what it is? A choice to obey. 
Any command requires a choice. It's not a matter of feelings. It's not even a matter of your own reason. It is a choice based simply on the word of God. It's a choice based on truth. And this choice results in Jesus who gave his life for us to live his life through us. For him to be expressed in the person of the Holy Spirit through us. And it is either that or we're living based on us and our resources rather than Christ, and the Bible calls that flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Because, or for, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, and for many, many years later, I did not know that I had entered into the conflict of my life. I didn't know that. And it's true of every follower of Jesus. There are no exceptions. It is the conflict of our lives. It is a conflict between me and my way or the Lord and his way. I think we can all identify with the fact that we, if we're honest with ourselves, can sense an inner conflict. Or do I speak only for me? And this passage identifies this conflict. It tells us what it is and how to recognize it. But you need to be very careful here. Unfortunately, well-meaning Bible teachers and authors and pastors have described the combatants in this conflict incorrectly. It says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. These are opposed, flesh and spirit. And so what happens is because people don't really know what this is talking about, they chalk up the conflict to something that some people call our sinful nature. Matter of fact, there's a, uh, the, the NIV, the old NIV translation of the Bible, instead of the word flesh, it says sinful nature. That is not the conflict. Paul says the conflict is between the flesh and the spirit, and we have to be clear on this. Now, the reference to the Spirit's easy, right? I mean, obviously, that's the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer. This is the new covenant reality that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul was speaking of in chapter 3. He also made very clear in chapter 4 when he wrote, Because you are children or sons, God sent his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit. So clearly that's party A in the conflict. Well, who's party B? Me. The Bible calls it flesh. See, the confusion happens because many people do not know what the flesh is. And I speak from personal experience because I didn't know what it was either. They don't know how it works. So therefore you'll hear Christians say, you know, when we mess up, you know, well, you know, that was my sinful nature. Guys, the Bible says our old self was crucified with him. Now, if you crucify someone, what has become true of that person? They're dead. Crucified means dead, right? Our old self, this is the person you and I were. This is the sinner that we were born. This is that nature that was ours, 
crucified with Christ. Our co-death with Christ brings to an end everything that began with Adam. Hallelujah. Try not to get too excited. (laughs) We have the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christ lives in me. This is a reality that flows not out of of our co-death with Jesus, but our co-resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead three days later, what happened to you, the, the, the person you are now? You were raised with him. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Why? Because you died to it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is not a battle between natures. It is a battle between something called the flesh and the Holy Spirit. The flesh is that which opposes the indwelling Holy Spirit from expressing himself through the believer. And Paul refers to this thing 160 times in his letters. You think maybe he wants us to know about it. So the question is, what is it? What is this? If it's not an old nature, what is it? It is an old way of living. It is that which comes natural to us. It is our natural independence from God. We do it our way. Some people call it the self-life. It's me making things about me that aren't about me. I do things my way. One person wrote, flesh is the loss of God at the control center. Everybody operates out of a control center. The thing is that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, nobody went boop on the way you normally do things. Did you have a boop moment? I, had, I, know, I didn't have no boop. I wish somebody did boop me. Right? You know, it would have been a little easier, I think. That's why it's a question of choice. No one hit the delete button on how you and I learned to operate, and we learned to operate based on me. The Bible calls that flesh. It is living independently of God. And if you do not embrace the simple truth that this comes naturally to us and that we do it in ways we don't even recognize, you're not going to be able to enjoy the life we truly have. Take it from an idiot who had to learn that lesson personally. Verse 18 reveals that this is a very different way. This, This walking by the Spirit is a very different thing than living under the law. It says those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. Why? Because of what the law is. The law is a futile attempt to restrain the flesh from the outside. You can't do that. To be led by the Spirit is to be transformed from the inside. No law can do that. This is not about behavior modification. It's about personal transformation. The obedience that the law requires will be the result when we walk by the Spirit. You know why? Because he always obeys the law. When that is happening, no law is needed. The fact is, either my flesh wins the moment or the Holy Spirit does. And I'm going to borrow an illustration from Pastor Dave because he has good illustrations goes like this. There's an Eskimo fisherman who would come to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought his two dogs with him. 
One was white, the other was black. And he taught them to fight on command. Every Saturday afternoon, I'm not advocating this, by the way. Every, every, I don't want to get no nasty letters at Pastor Dave at BaysideChapel.org. <clears throat> One was white, the other was black. He taught them to fight on command. Every Saturday afternoon in the town square, the people would gather and these two dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets. One Saturday, the black dog would win. The next Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fisherman always won. And his friends began to ask him, how did you, how did you do that? How did you know each time which one's going to win? He goes, simple. I starve one and I feed the other. The one I feed always wins. You see, the first thing we see from this text this morning is I either choose to walk by the Spirit or I don't. Don't wait to feel it's a choice. So then Paul goes on. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, television, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Don't we get such great stuff? And I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does it surprise you that the stuff on this list that you're capable of? Remember something. He's not writing about those people. He's writing to people. He's just got done saying, walk by the Spirit. There's only one person who can do that. That's a person indwelt by the Spirit. That means a Christian. You and I have to accept the fact that Christians are capable of this and more. People that are born again indwelt by the spirit of the living God, destined for heaven. This explains some of that shocking stuff that I was talking about before. You've seen it, haven't you? And the list can be broken into a few sections, real briefly. For example, there are sexual sins here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. There are religious sins here. Idolatry, sorcery. There are social sins Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, and such. And it says, and things like these. Do you see that? You know what that implies? This list is not exhaustive. There are many other deeds of the flesh that could be included. Now, I want to point something out to you guys. This list contains only examples of what some people would call bad-looking flesh or ugly flesh. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, none of that stuff is good-looking stuff. And anyone, I would suggest any, anybody, even a non-Christian, could spot some of this stuff and say, that probably ain't coming from Jesus. You know? You don't have to be a genius to figure that out, see? Here's the trick. Yes, obviously that stuff comes from flesh. But did you know that your flesh can look really good? I didn't know that. It can look religious. It can look spiritual. And that is why the author of Hebrews says something very interesting in chapter 5. He writes, Shazam. Thank you. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, <coughs> excuse me, you need someone to teach you again. 
The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. You see, there is an evil that can look good. What do you mean by that, Joe? Well, for example, if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, he attributes his life of religiosity to this. But a real good example to consider for a few minutes of what we will call good-looking flesh, looking good because it looks good to other people, is Moses. Do you remember the story? It's in in, uh, Numbers chapter 20. The people of Israel have been wandering around the wilderness now for almost 40 years because of their faithlessness, right? And Moses is kind of fed up with them. And they come along, and once again, they start to complain. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to take us out to the desert? This is called the the whining translation. This has been going on for decades for this poor guy. So Moses does what Moses does. He goes before the Lord, and the Lord says to Moses, you see that rock? I want you to speak to that rock. And when you speak to that rock, water will come out, and the people will get their water. But Moses is primed to try to accomplish God's will his way, which is flesh. Because he's frustrated with these people. And so Moses gets up in front of him and he says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff and water came out. And the community and their livestock drank. Hmm. Moses hit the rock. God told him to speak to the rock. That's a different process than what God told. This is flesh because it's his way. But please notice the product that came out. It wasn't mud and filth. It was life-giving, refreshing, clean water. This is the grace of God, not holding God's people responsible for the idiocy of their leaders. To the people's eye, this looked great. As a matter of fact, you can imagine a a guy kind of going, hey, wait a minute, I remember this. My dad, you know, the one who died in the wilderness, he told me that when the people came out of Egypt and they were thirsty, you know, back in Exodus chapter 17, look it up, you can, God said, Moses went to God and said, what do I do? And God said, take your staff, strike the rock, and water will come out. And that's exactly what happened. And it happened again. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. And God looks at Moses and goes, why did you show me to be unholy in the sight of this people? Because you have done this, you will not bring these people into the land that I promised to give to their forefathers. It's a high price, isn't it? But it looked good. You see then, how do you know the difference? How do we know it's not I, but Christ? How do we know that it's not my flesh? Simple. 
Simple. This is beautiful. How do you know, I hope you know, that when you stop breathing, you'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord? How do you know that? He said so. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? Well, the same word of God that says this says things like this. It's my will, Joe, that you be controlled by my spirit. And look what the Apostle John says happens when we ask anything according to the will of God. He writes, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In other words, it's simply taking God at his word. You see, our passage tells us that it's a matter of a choice. Either I want to obey or I don't. Either I walk by the Spirit or I don't. And the second thing it shows us is this, that the key to walking by the Spirit is faith, taking God at his word. So the Apostle Paul continues now by looking at the other side of the opposition. Verse 22 in chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, after showing the destructive nature of what our self-reliant living produces, Paul tells us how to avoid it. He says, walk or continually conduct yourself by the Spirit. Paul does not point. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, you want to have the life you really are supposed to have? You want to enjoy what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Just keep these ten rules. Uh, I'll give you a break. Keep five. Keep one. No. He doesn't point us to commandments. He doesn't point us to law. He doesn't point us to philosophy. He points us to a person. The person of the indwelling Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Walk by him. Did you know that seven times in this letter, Paul associates the words faith with the Holy Spirit and then contrasts those words with works and flesh. Hear it? Faith, not works. Spirit, not flesh. The way to live is to continually walk by the Spirit. This concept is consistent with everything the Apostle Paul has been teaching in the letter to the Galatians. This was the Galatian problem. That's what they were not doing. And it's also consistent with the overall redemptive work of God in human history In the Old Testament, in the New Covenant promises, he writes, I will put my spirit within you. This is in Ezekiel. This isn't New Testament. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to obey my ordinances. The Lord Jesus himself spoke of this reality the night before he died. He wrote, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That word another means like me. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him or see him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Later on he says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
You want a little interesting piece of data here? Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to do what he did on a cross just so you and I could go to heaven. Did you know that? You want me to prove that to you? God's purpose, he's going to accomplish his purposes. If the only reason Jesus came to this earth was to die on the cross so that our sin could be forgiven and we could go to heaven, let me ask you a really simple question. What in the world are you people doing here? Are we in heaven? New Jersey, heaven? What a cruel joke. What a horrible joke. Did, I mean, did you ever think about that? Jesus didn't just die on the cross so we could go to heaven. He gave his life for me so he could live his life through me. That's the new covenant reality that we just looked at. So let's take a quick look. Let's take a quick look at the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Love. It starts with love. This is the greatest of all virtues. You know what love is? Love is your needs are more important to me than my wants. It's completely other-centered. Joy. This is the inner delight that comes from my relationship with Jesus Christ. Peace. The Bible says he is our peace. This is inner tranquility. It comes from knowing that God loves me and is at work in everything for my good. Patience. This is forbearance with others. You know why we have to be patient with each other? You know why you, know why you need to be patient with me? I'm weird. <laughs> and Miriam, you're weird too. why the Bible says you're a peculiar people. Being patient with each other's shortcomings. None of us have arrived. Kindness. This is behaving toward others as God behaves toward us. Grace and mercy. Goodness. This is basically just wanting what's best for you. Faithfulness. It means I can be trusted. It means... You can take me at my word because I can take him at his. Gentleness. I like this definition. Gentleness is strength under control. And self-control, which is having victory over what my flesh wants to do. Purity in my mind and, and in my conduct. And then Paul says, against such things there is no law. Well, why would there be? Why would you outlaw that? The law was designed to restrain evil, not to empower righteousness. The law has nothing to do with the way you and I are to approach the Christian life. Because law living is based on me doing the doing or not doing. Spirit living is based on Jesus doing the doing through me by means of my humble trust in him to live his life through me. And you don't tell the indwelling Christ to keep the law. He is the law. So as you and I consider the fruit of the spirit, we need to keep something in mind. Let me, this is how insidious our flesh is now. You ready for this? Because all of you are hearing this and going, yeah, I don't want that stuff in my life. I want the fruit of the spirit. Nobody's in here thinking that. If you are, you need to see me for counseling like immediately. <laughs> but here's what our flesh does, see? We look at this list and go, I need to work on the patience thing. You hear the problem with that? 
I need to work on. Hmm. It's the fruit of who? The fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Joe Ferraldi. But you look at this list and go, I need to work on this, or I'm failing at that. And, you know, we start, and, there, and the flesh is going. <laughs> I speak from experience, guys. I mean, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. And that's why the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us, when he talks about I am the vine, you are the branches. Yeah. Yeah. This picture that all the, all of, on a cherry tree, do you know how, it, you, did you see the cherry trees this season? They were stunning. Let me ask you something. Those little branches that hold those beautiful flowers, how hard do they have to work? Did they have to work? How much trying was involved? Hmm? No. They just draw life from the life source. Jeff Guyberson is here. He knows what I'm about to do next because he taught me this years ago. We were talking about that passage once in, 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 in John 15. And he goes, you know, branches on a cherry tree aren't up there going like this. Cherries! <laughs> right? So we look at the fruit of the Spirit and go, patience! I hate patience. <laughs> Don't ever pray for patience. Because then the Lord will make you exercise it. I mean, I mean, we laugh, but it's true. It's his fruit. So what do I do? Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, everything I want to accomplish, I'll accomplish through you. Just rest in me. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What's he talking about here? This is a reference to the reality of our union with Christ in his death. This is the reality that the Apostle Paul goes into great detail in, in Romans, uh, on, in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because he who has died is freed from sin. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's your reality. Doesn't mean you're always going to feel it. Let me give you a simple principle, okay, about sin. You want a great definition of sin? Sin is anything that does not have its source in God. No matter what it looks like, no matter how religious or holy or not, if it doesn't come from God, it ain't righteous. It's sin. And you and I are commanded to consider ourselves dead to anything that does not have God as its source. Am I the source of my life and activity or is the indwelling spirit of Christ? It's a matter of choice. 
Verse 24 is a reference to my co-death with Christ. Verse 25 is a reference to our co-resurrection. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You and I have eternal life. It's up to us to tap into it. You and I are to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ. Do you know why it's eternal life? Yeah, I mean, that's what we call it, right? We have eternal life. It's not because it lasts forever. It's eternal life because of whose life it is. It is the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Right now, in you, by faith, ready to express itself through you. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? These two verses refer to those two major aspects of our union with Christ, my death with Christ and my resurrection with Christ. You and I have been given the life of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you and I are to look to him to be the source out of which we live. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. He gave his life for me in order to live his life through me by means of my simple dependence on him to do it. Keeping in step with the Spirit means one thing at a time. One step at a time. Maybe you're like me, you know. I want to know steps one to five. And the Lord goes, no, no, no. He didn't do that with Abraham, and he won't always do it with us. See? One step at a time. Don't get, don't get ahead of him. Don't lag behind. Just walk with him. And it's a walk of faith, and faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. It comes down to trusting in his faithfulness. He keeps his word. And then finally, Paul says, and let us not become conceited. How could we? When we realize what the real source of all this is. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Every Christian should be humble. Because what is true of us was never something that we could make happen. That humility is to have a horizontal impact on us and how we think and deal with each other because our inability and his provision are equal to all of us. When we realize that the, changes in our, the change that he has brought about in, his, in our lives is not something we can take credit for, then we're not going to get conceited and judgmental or envious when somebody else seems to be a little further along. When the Holy Spirit is being allowed to live through us. The result is relational well-being also. Relational well-being. When I meet with Christian couples whose marriages are struggling, you know that happens, right? Check this out. Try this exercise sometime, all right? You might even do it while you're right here. I'll say to a husband and a wife, okay, I want you to close your eyes and using your hands on a scale from one to ten, I want you to tell me how much you would characterize your relationship over the last couple of weeks in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, how much would you describe the character of your relationship in terms of love, joy, peace, kindness, right? You know, and their eyes are closed. And she goes, and he's an idiot. He goes, you ready? Whatever the difference and I'll bet you some of you guys just did this. Whatever the difference is between your score and 10 is how much it's been your flesh and not the spirit. You get that? It's his fruit. 
The difference between my seven and ten means I've been fleshing my spouse three out of ten. See, when it's the fruit of the Spirit, it's not just individual benefit, it's relational benefit. There's no division when he is in control. There is no unresolved conflict when he is in control. There is no racism when the spirit of Christ is in control. No jealousy, no bitterness, no damaged families. We do that. He never does. Never. And the quality of life that these verses describe as a kind of life that any of us would want and all of us can have. The only way to live the Christian life, the only the Holy Spirit can live the Christian life. It's a matter of our choice. It's a matter of faith. He's the only one who can do it. And so much of what we think is wrong in our lives and between us would get straightened out if we would just yield to him. So much more of the beauty God wants for our lives would be realized when it's not I, but Christ. If we would choose moment by moment to live by the Spirit. Now, I want to give you another illustration that I stole, uh, borrowed. Okay, you see the, the top portion of the glasses? There's, no, there's, there's air there, see that? Well, that air is your flesh. That's our natural tendency to make it about us, see? Now, D.L. Moody was teaching this once. D.L. Moody, Moody was sort of the Billy Graham of his generation. And he said to his audience, tell me, how do I get air out of this thing? And somebody said, well, suck it out with a pump. But the evangelist said, well, that'll create a vacuum and shatter the glass. So after a whole lot of suggestions, Moody picked up a pitcher of water. The air's gone. Be filled with the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit. Just feed Him. Be filled with Him. This is the key to knowing the life we truly have in Christ. Dependence on the Holy Spirit is the only way to walk. There is a quality of life that every one of us can know. It is a life of faith of, that is fruitful, purposeful, a life filled with acceptance, joy, peace, and kindness. It is the abundant life Jesus said he came to give us. It is the spirit-filled life of Jesus Christ. Don't miss out on it by getting in his way. Depend on the Holy Spirit to live the life that you cannot live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the simplicity of your truth. And right now all I can do is tell you that I can only pray for me in this regard. By simple trust, I choose to be controlled by you. And I pray this prayer would be every person in this room, not just for now, but each day, that we would come before you and say, Lord, whatever you want, in the words, not I, but Christ, whatever walking by the Spirit looks like for today, that's what I choose. Because I've, I've tasted and seen that you are good, and I've tasted and seen that which my flesh produces, and it is not good. We choose to obey the simple command to walk by the Spirit, 
and not gratify our self-centered desires. May we be a church who walks by such dependence on you that people would see the Christ who gave his life for us expressed through us for our joy in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.